welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. So we've been gone for a while. We've uh, been playing a, a long interview from a helpful chap named Chris Clearfield for the last four weeks, and uh, we're back in our chairs, and we've completed our uh, pre, pre-flight pre checklist that we do before each uh, episode, and, and that actually turns out to be related to the topic of the episode. That's right. I think uh, this is it's an, actually going to be an old article and in a sense an old topic uh, because we actually did it in a previous episode about uh, checklists on the podcast uh, about 11 months ago. Um, but I think you told me that this recently came up for you and, and came across your radar. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So this is an article, uh, which of course will be in the show notes, from Nature, a relatively well-known scientific journal. Probably everybody knows it. And the title is, Hospital Checklists Are Meant to Save Lives, So Why Do They Often Fail? And they had me at that title because I love <laughs> checklists. They, they're they tremendously useful. Uh, I have one I actually use before I leave the house in the morning that makes sure that I don't forget my phone or my uh, uh, comb or my computer, all of which I have forgotten. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's very, very helpful for my fragile human brain to make sure that I actually do the right stuff. And I've seen that over and over again as the previous episode, which we'll link also in the show notes, goes into more detail on. If you've learned something, it's great to create a checklist so that that learning can continue. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is that um, the, the place that a lot of us heard about this from is um, Atul Gawanda's book, uh, the Checklist Manifesto, and he's a doctor, and, and his book is about much more than just hospitals, but he starts with hospitals. He says, if you use checklists, you will kill fewer patients. Which Sounds seems pretty, pretty good. good. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah exactly. <laughs> Let's do that. Um, and then the article explains why people went out and tried this, and it didn't work. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I really like that too. And I've, I've, I'm a longtime uh, uh, fan of uh, checklists. And it, I remember when, when the original uh, article uh, around the checklist manifesto was circulating, you know, I think it was a website before it was a book. Um, and when that was going around, it was, it was something that said, like, this is so good. It's such a, a, a simple tool. And it's something, as we discussed previously, I'd used uh, as, a, as a, a glider pilot. So I was used to the pre-flight checklist. And so it was, it was very surprising to me to see the results that uh, and I think this the most of most of this uh, article uh, it talked about multiple studies, but one that was done in the UK uh, with the NHS, which makes it even more relevant to both you and I. <laughs> Indeed, since we both live in England, right? And interestingly, the the article describes three different types of resistance that came up, three different things that made the checklists fail. And I thought we might just talk about each of those. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's great. And I think what we'll see and, and what I think is especially relevant, not just for people wanting to checklist, but uh, p- how people often respond to different uh, when they're trying to adopt Agile. So it turns out I think troubleshooting your checklist adoption might also help you uh, troubleshoot your Agile adoption as well. All right. Well, let's have a look and, and see what we find. So the, the most common resistance, uh, the most common reason that the checklists failed uh, when hospitals were trying to use them was that staff resisted or failed to complete the checklist. And by the way, we should, we should explain what the checklist was. So it's um, the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, instituted a checklist. I think it had 19 or 20 points on it. And they said, look, if you use this before you work on a patient, you, you're less likely to kill them. You will not 
cause infection. You will not cause various kinds of problems. And they're very basic things like introduce yourself to the patient, mark the surgical site with a pen. Um, the, the doctors do this for my wife. She has um, surgeries on her eye frequently, and there's one eye that they need to work on and not the other one. <laughs> and so they draw a little arrow that goes and points to this eye, work on this eye. So uh, they're, they're very certain you know, to amputate the correct leg and do uh, intervention on the correct lung or, or whatever it is. They don't get confused. So it's basic things like that. Uh, but what the uh, study found was that um, people still said, uh, no, we, we don't think that's a useful thing to do. Do, do you get any uh, sense why that was, Jeffrey? Well, the, what I like is, so along with the three reasons, they, they gave uh, uh, quotes. And, and uh, one of the, uh, the quotes I think is very telling. Uh, and uh, someone said, uh, you know, when surgeons weren't on board, you were told to, oh, shut up and let's get on with it. And so I can imagine, you know, here in the in this, you know, surgical theater, you're the person whose job it is to be filling out the checklist. And you have the, the most uh, prestigious person in the room saying, look, come on, let's go. Like that's that's going to be pretty serious resistance, and it's going to be very hard for the person who's signed up to be the you know the the, the person uh, monitoring the checklist to, uh, to to really do a diligent job of it. Mm -hmm. And this is something we talk about a lot: is that how important it is to do joint design when you're introducing something new. I do this with my clients all the time. I will come along and say, "Gee, it might be useful if we had some of the people who work together sit together." You know, I did this at a client <laughs> a few weeks ago. We got the product managers and the designers over there in that separate room, and then we have the developers over here. I think it might be useful if they sat together. How about over here, where there seem to be some empty desks? And when you simply come in and start moving people's desks, that doesn't work out very well. No. <laughs> when you have a discussion with them, you find out things like those empty desks over there are too small. Uh, we can't actually fit on those desks, but you know, we'd be willing to go to the cafe. And, oh, okay. Uh, you get a lot of opportunities for improved behavior, but even better, you can, you, can, you can improve your plan, but even better, you can actually have people who are not saying, oh yeah, come on, let's get on with it. They're saying, ah, I was part of this. I helped design this. So it would be cognitively dissonant for me not to participate in at least giving it a try. That's right. And I, and I think this is a very interesting uh, kind of contrast from what I've seen with agile adoption, particularly at large organizations where it's very top down and there's sort of a you know monolithic approach to we're going to get everyone and all the teams, you know, are, we're going to be an agile corporation now. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that I saw that mirrored in this article where they said that these uh, hospitals had already been involved in a, a lot of different government-led centralized efforts to reduce infections. And so the checklist was seen as just a, another example of this sort of top-down thing being you know, uh, pushed down on top of them. And, and that's, so, that's exactly what I remember hearing uh, in, in the 2000s, uh, going around sort of uh, different large companies and have some banks in mind where they, where they said, oh, this is just you know, a flavor of the day. You know, we're, we're always being told to change in various ways, but, uh, you know, in the end, we're, we're just going to, you know, get through this and go back to doing things the way we always have. And, and so that's, I think, why this, this, the uh, surgeons resisting reminded me so much of that, because it was often the, the most experienced senior people who had the most resistance because they had been through, they've been through the cycle the most number of times. The previous seven ones, all we had to do was wait a couple months and then we could go back to doing <laughs> things the way we know works. So we'll just wait this one out. That's right. So while your fresh grads, you know, might be eager, oh look, they're telling us to do something. Let's go do it. Uh, they'll very quickly be brought down to earth by the, 
by the, the more senior seasoned and, and perhaps cynical if those people aren't brought into it and, and made part of it, which is why the joint design, I think, is so important. Mm -hmm. Should we move on to the next one? I think so. The, the checklist was inappropriate or illogical. And I, I love this one because the, well, I, I love it and I'm horrified by it because some of the examples <laughs> really curl your hair. Uh, yeah, and the, the relevant quote here was, it's a bit bizarre and there's a sense of, I'm not actually progressing the patient care with this question. Now, I, I, want, I know you have a particular uh, example of it being illogical, and I think maybe we could share that one first. It's a bit extreme. It's just so horrific that, uh, that it makes you shake your head. So the um, WHO checklist says things like, make sure you have antibiotics on hand, because if an infection starts, you want to be able to use them. Well, there were uh, hospitals in Africa that don't have any antibiotics. Now, it's terrible that they don't have basic materials. That's something that humanity should do something about. I'm certainly in favor of changing that. But if you the fact on the ground is that you don't actually have the thing, then it is extremely inappropriate and illogical and ridiculous to make somebody tick a box. And in fact, what they found, the study found, that people did tick the box, even though they manifestly could see the box of, of, uh, of antibiotics on the shelf was empty. They would just tick the box that said, yep, we've checked the antibiotics. Well, we checked them, but they aren't here. <laughs> right. And I, I think what's interesting to me is that this this answer that's being given, this has been from the staff, they're saying, what was the problems? And uh, this idea of it, it being illogical, I think sometimes there's a case that you're, like you're describing where it's manifestly illogical. And there'll be examples of that uh, in a sort of um, cookie cutter agile implementation as well. You you might say, for example, you know, make sure people with all of these titles are present. And it's like, well, we don't, you know, we don't, we don't have those. Um, my, my favorite is when people are writing, um, they're writing stories using the um, uh, as a uh, or given when then or, or as a this I want to do that so that the other thing and they're they're building some piece of software that's not used by humans it's it's an API or something so at, I've I've seen these things where it's you know as a um, service consumer uh, I I want to uh, send a JSON message it's <laughs> right it, it's clearly makes no sense whatsoever but they're following the format. Right, exactly, and I think what what's striking for me is I think and part of this is is though can be a case of where um, maybe is really illogical, or maybe actually the person doesn't really understand it. They don't understand how to apply it in a scenario, but it is logical and appropriate. And and the the, the things for the for the individual who's there with a the checklist, they really don't have a way to distinguish between um, it is actually inappropriate or illogical or. I just am unaware of how to apply it appropriately, and and, um, and I so I've seen both of these in agile scenarios. Uh, in the example that you've described, where um, you know people are uh, being asked to follow a, a a template that doesn't make sense in their context, but similarly, I've seen people who will say things like, "There's no way we could break this down to something that takes you know less than less than six weeks." Whereas I have a bet on my website, that, and I've never lost it, that I can help people break things into pieces that are one day long. Yeah. Uh, so it is manifestly true that you can do it, and I do it over and over again for my clients. But so for someone who doesn't know how or doesn't have the mindset, it, that being asked to do it makes it seems completely inappropriate and illogical. Right. And uh, and so I think it's, it's the the question sometimes that people aren't following. Uh, the process that you're thinking, or they resist the process, it's because there hasn't been this this sort of conversation about why this is appropriate. And I think that was one of the places where it was successful is when uh, there were uh, people who were taking time to get people on board. Um, and one of the examples here, they talked about 
in uh, the NHS survey, while it was uh, not successful as a as an initiative overall, they did find one ICU where the uh, that had a high infection rate that then fell to zero um, when they adopted this program. And what really made a difference here was there was a charismatic uh, physician. So again, someone is sort of a senior. A position who then really championed the checklist and rallied other people around it. So, and I think that idea of getting people on board so that everyone knows why they're doing it, uh, getting a common a common uh, a triangulation on what you're trying to to uh, to accomplish, can then uh, fill that gap. That if you just simply give people the checklist and without that sort of chance for people to uh, digest it and and orient to it, um, then they're left thinking, well, this this doesn't make sense for us. Absolutely. And I'm thinking of the client of mine who's going to do a reorganization this week where people are going to move around and be in different teams and so on. And I'm, I'm doubly pleased that the person I'm coaching decided to make sure there was time for questions after. So he's going to introduce the new approach and, and what we're doing and why we're doing it. And then say, he's going to say, well, we're, we're available to discuss that further today and other days. Um, so that uh, anything that seems inappropriate or illogical, we can we can separate into one of those two classes. Yes, this was actually wrong. No, we're not doing it the way we thought. Or uh, this seems inappropriate or illogical, but um, here's what is behind it. Here's information you didn't have. Either of those is very useful to have when you're trying to make that kind of change. On to the third one. Number three, yeah. Indeed. This one I, I really like as well also because it has a great historical parallel. The, the checklist was thought to waste time. Yeah, I, I, I was kind of really surprised at that. I think this is, the, of all of them, this is this is the one that, that caught me the most by surprise because checklists always seemed like such a um, low cost, high uh, a return uh, element. And, um, and and so that, that really surprised me. The, the relevant quote here was, um, uh, you know, yet more delay. Oh gosh, we're going to get less work done for the patients. And, and I think actually that's, I had the same reaction, but when I think about it more, I, I think it might be a failing of empathy, at least for me, that it's hard to remember what it was like before I thought checklists were useful. And um, e- even a small delay, it's a distraction, right? It's an, it's another thing you're going to be doing. And what you really want to be doing is get your hands on the keyboard and, and get coding. Yep. And uh, th- this reminds me of something that it's, it's really, really hard to empathize with, uh, which is the story of, uh, I hope I can get his name right. Uh, where'd he go? Uh, Ig- Ignaz Semmelweis, I hope I'm saying his name right, uh, a doctor in the 1800s who originated the idea, uh, who was the first one really to promulgate the idea that maybe if you washed your hands in between <laughs> seeing different sick patients, you would kill fewer of them. <laughs> it's, it's it's worse than that. It, it, it's, it was if you, if you would wash your hands between doing, um, working with cadavers, Oh right, yes. Between the dead ones and the the live ones, you would you would get fewer live ones ill. Yes, that's right. Um, and the objection was exactly this objection. The doctors said, "Well, look, I have all these very ill patients. They're filling my hospital and spilling out onto the street. I need to see as many of them as possible. If I stop for a few moments to wash my hands, I will not be able to see as many of them, and more of them will die. You're ridic- You're you're nuts, Ignatz. And in fact, he he did go nuts. He was he died in a mental hospital." Uh, because he was uh, uh, not listened to, even though there was uh, substantial proof that this uh, would work. And of course, we now know today that we have the germ theory of disease, and we understand where disease comes from. But of course, at that time, they didn't. So a, a very it's hard to empathize with that today, to say, how could any doctor in his or her right mind ever say that you know, you, uh, washing your hands wastes time? 
but if you don't have that idea in your mind to start with, it, it is actually more logical to you, even though it isn't when we when we know more. And the sort of the agile equivalent of this, I, I know a lot of the resistance that I've seen from uh, uh, developers would say, "Look, we already spend far too much time in meetings mm-hmm. and not enough time coding, and now you want us to adopt this agile thing where we're going to have." more meetings right? and like that you're going to have us meet every single day uh, and that that sounds terrible <laughs> this is yeah what could be worse exactly we already don't spend enough time coding uh, and getting things done and now you're going to you're going to add all this overhead you're going to add a a, a planning meeting and a, an estimation meeting and a you know this that meeting this you know this is this is going to be just uh, just awful and from their point of view if you're empathetic to where they start from it that that does make sense if you've been through those processes and, and you see how they can help you and you've seen them implemented well, you see how that actually saves you time. But from their point of view, starting from where they are, it makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think also there's there's an element here around, uh, which I found interesting from the article, uh, around logistics. And that in one of the uh, places they looked at, this is, a not, this is outside the uh, NHS study, but um, one of the researchers had, had uh, looked at uh, when they first, uh, at one ICU, um, began implementing the checklist, they realized that uh, to to uh, complete the checklist, to complete the insertion, that the doctors had to go to eight different places to collect all the supplies they needed. Um, and where it had been successful in the sort of the uh, Michigan program that people were trying to emulate, uh, they had assembled carts that contained all the necessary supplies. And I, to me, when I was reading this, it reminded me so much of the lean idea of removing waste. So it wasn't just here, take this checklist, but also think about what you're asking people to do and make doing the right things easier. Uh, and that's some key ideas. Absolutely. One of our favorite examples is the, the sit down stand up, right? So if you're, uh, if you're having a stand up and, and you, uh, somebody says, we're going to have this meeting every day and you're used to things that take hours and hours, of course, you're going to think it's terrible. If you're, if you're standing up and your feet hurt after three minutes and somebody says, yes, that's right. Good time to stop. Let's go. Uh, do other things, you will have a very different experience. That's like getting the cart together with all the materials. But if you don't do that, you won't have the the outcome. The, the what I what I remember about the the uh, in sort of this is my you know very very old days of agile, when the idea of build servers were very new, and the idea of telling people that we're going to be uh, checking in all the time, there was a lot of resistance to that because they felt like well things are going to be just broken all the time. And uh, and it was sort of well, let's let's put the work in place and sort of like you know assembling the carts to make it easier. Uh, let's make sure we can get you feedback on your check in very quickly. Yep, and don't even get me started on actually releasing it to real customers. Shock horror! <laughs> that was something you couldn't even think of. Right, but it is so. This exactly. So I think there's this very interesting interplay between uh, people's perceptions ahead of time of what the time is going to be, and then also you know the work you can do and invest to make doing the right things easier. And, uh, and, and and more effective, and then uh, lower that resistance. Mm-hmm. So we've we've been through all three of the reasons that the checklists fail. They they sound an awful lot like why agile projects fail. Yeah, they they, they, they do. And there was one other element though that that jumped out uh, about the elements that were successful in the uh, uh, Keystone uh, uh, project in in Michigan. That was the uh, inspiration for a lot of this. That was the article that was um, the, the study that was behind what Atul Gawande first published. And, and I think it was, it was something that was worth uh, calling out. And it, it relates to one of your uh, favorite stories uh, about um, uh, baked goods. Oh, yes. <laughs> 
should I tell that story or uh, do you want to introduce the idea? Okay, I'll tell the story. So um, uh, there, there's a great debate over which baker it was. Was it the Duncan Hines company? Was it somebody else? Um, but there's, there's uh, uh, actually even articles about which one it was. But some company first invented the idea of... Um, uh, instant cake mix. So you take a powder and you put water on it and you put it in your oven and you get a cake out. And you would think that this would be the most popular thing ever, that everyone would be completely excited about not having to do all the you know, mixing and measuring and all the stuff, but it didn't sell. And then somebody had the bright idea after being confused by this for a while of actually asking some customers. And what the customers said was, well, you know, what we really want to do is feel like we're baking something. We don't feel like we're baking anything. You know, all we're doing is kind of mixing some water in. And so you can actually find, uh, we have this in our book, examples of Betty Crocker uh, cake mix from the 1950s. And it says, with your own egg, because they took the egg powder out. <laughs> and so you you add the egg to make it delicious. And um, that example shows that if you get people involved in the process themselves, if they are actually helping to design it and make it uh, themselves, they will buy into it more. And there is uh, evidence of that here. Yeah, which is that um, the hospitals in, in, in Michigan, when they were adopting this sort of key uh, checklist approach, they were asked to, to, to make the checklist of their own. And each uh, hospital then kind of had their own version of the checklist. Now they were 95% the same, um, but it was that 5% different that made it work for them. And it's, you know, and this Just is like the egg. From, from circle. Yeah, exactly. It was their egg because uh, every one of these hospitals thought that theirs was the best, you know, so they were, they had ownership of this and were committed to it uh, because of that 5%, because they had their egg in there, uh, not just the mix. And, and I think that's a very uh, important point that I think uh, leads to something I, I'm hoping that we're going to talk about next time, because uh, I think this is one of the um, elements of Agile that people have most lost sight of. When we talk about troubleshooting Agile, one of the things that I find um, most commonly behind uh, a difficulty in adopting is that, is that people don't feel like they have this ability to control, and they've lost sight of uh, principle number 12 from the Agile Manifesto, the 12 principles. It says at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective and tunes and adjusts their behavior accordingly. Meaning, you know, they're adding their own self into it and changing their process and the process becomes their own. And uh, I think that's something that's a, here we can see its uh, impact on checklists. And I think I'd like to talk a little bit more about that next time uh, in, the, in, in the larger Agile context. Excellent. Well, let's make sure to do that. If you've been using checklists and had them fail or not, or if you're trying to adopt Agile and you've encountered some of the difficulties we've described, we'd sure love to hear from you. You can always find us at troubleshootingagile.com, and we're on email and Twitter and pretty much anything else you can think of to get in touch with us. We also like it when you tap that subscribe button or uh, anything else that helps you to hear us every Wednesday when our podcast comes out. We'd love to talk to you next week so that you can come back and, and hear from us on uh, adopting and adjusting Agile techniques just as uh, the more successful checklist folks did. Excellent. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Squirrel.